All right, well, um, I'm gonna just jump in because I think you really don't require any introduction. Uh, if you don't know who Cal Newport is, I don't know where you've been, but Cal Newport is one of the people that, you know, every time you release a new book, I always write a review of it. I've respected your work for a long time. And on top of that, we've been friends for like nearly 15 years now, which is kind of incredible. And so I think I just wanted to sort of take a chance to go through some of what we've kind of gone through over like how our writing has evolved over time and then talk about, you know, some of your unique experiences. So I think we were introduced, I want to say it was either 2006 or 2007. So that gives a kind of a sense of how long ago it was. And I think we were introduced, I had just started blogging and I was writing a little bit about studying. And I think you were maybe, maybe about to publish how to become a straight A student. Yes, I was writing. Well, I, I was interviewing you for an article about blogs, I think, or life hacking. Maybe yeah, it was about an life article hacking. about blogs. I think that right there is is uh, showing how long ago this was. I think that sets over. the time period, right? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, because I, I, I remember being in my very one of my very first small little apartments I lived in near Harvard Square when we first met. So that was, it would have been very early in graduate school. I would have been like a six months out of school. Yeah. So that would have been right around the time how to win a college came out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also very interesting for me just because I've gotten to see your career evolve, like kind of in lockstep. I know there's obviously people that you sort of watch them from afar, but I've gotten to see you go from, well, being a student to now being a tenured professor to from being someone who is, you know, you were, you were a published author, you were writing books, but you were writing kind of uh, soft cover books aimed at sort of, I think that the technical term is trade paperback, but like aimed at kind of students. And now you write these big idea books and you do New Yorker op-eds and all sorts of things like that. So the, the starting question I have is that you have simultaneously pursued two careers, uh, author and professor, academic, that, you know, normally these are very time-consuming, ambitious careers if you're only doing one of them, and yet you've done two at the same time, uh, sort of in parallel. So kind of how did you come to that decision to do two careers at once, and and what's your thoughts on that if anyone is sort of contemplating anything so so wild and crazy? Well, I mean, one thing to say is that it, it is two different careers, but they're two careers that are not that far apart. So it, mm. it's not quite the same as if I was an airline pilot. It's, it's not so unusual. I mean, you think about uh, all the different, like, say, professors in the sciences, for example, that mm -hmm. uh, Richard Dawkins, you have Jonathan Haidt. Um, so so it, was, it was sort of on the radar. Uh, but essentially, I, I started writing in college. And I was a, a columnist for the newspaper. I wrote for the Humor magazine. I was the editor of the Humor magazine. I wrote my first book in college, then it, it was published soon after. And when I was deciding, therefore, what to do after college was over, I was already a writer at that point. So part of the way I was making my decision is I was thinking what career path was going to give me continued flexibility to keep mm. writing. And so I, I actually wrote about this particular decision years ago. I had a, an op-ed in the New York Times where I talked about this this particular decision, but I was a, a senior and I had a, a really lucrative job offer from Microsoft. Uh, this was before Google was actually Google was a thing. They had 20 employees and I knew <laughs> someone who had gone there and she'd come back and said, you should join this company. And I was like, are you crazy? Google? No, no, no. Microsoft is, <laughs> is where he's at. So, uh, but I had an offer from Microsoft, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this straight up standard lucrative computer science job. And then uh, the grad school acceptance from MIT. And one of the big things that swayed me towards grad school is, you know, that's going to give me time to write as well, that there's a lot of autonomy. You have autonomy. Mm -hmm. It's very results oriented. You have very, a lot of autonomy in your schedule. You don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. You don't have to re report to an office. And so uh, that was the plan from the beginning. My broader advice is I typically preach focus. And we've talked about this before. You've written a lot mm -hmm. about this. I've written a lot about this. We've been back and forth on this a lot. I think we've we've honed in together on a pretty good mentality around this. But somewhere around two things is probably the limit of things you can do at a high level. And even there, you probably need those things to be pretty well related. And so yeah. 
I, I do like to push that out that uh, I was able to be a writer and a professor, but that was hard. And I really had to leverage the fact that those two things are related and that academics get a, a lot of leeway for mm-hmm. autonomy in their schedule for trying to make that type of thing work. So uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people are interested in is maybe sort of emulating some of the success you've had, maybe either as a writer, as an author, or even just becoming an academic. Like, as I said, these are both very ambitious careers. And you are someone who I've gotten to kind of hear a lot of inside advice over the years, especially in the writer trajectory, more so than the academic trajectory. But what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people who are not insiders have about these two respective kind of either careers or sort of options like writing books or becoming an academic? What do you think is the sort of misconception that people have going into it or the misconception that naive people have in pursuing it that like, oh, no, no, that's not the right way to do it. But a lot of people get caught in that trap. Well, I mean, I think one of the things you and I talk about, for example, in our, our top performer course is the the danger of writing your own storyline for how you want a career path to work, as opposed to actually going out and understanding how do people succeed in this particular endeavor. I think writing and probably academia are two of the two of the areas where this this uh, type of misthinking happens the most. I think writing in particular, it's very easy for people to come up with, this is what I want to do. Like I want to, my plan is I'm going to write every morning. I'm going to do a thousand pages. I'm going to do novel, uh, national novel writing month. Uh, it's easy to become fixated on things that turn out to be very uh, tertiary to the actual issues. Like, well, there's this whole gatekeeper effect. And if I could just get around the gatekeepers by using social media or self-publishing, that's going to be my path. Uh, or maybe it's a courage is the main issue. If I could just have the courage to get my book out of me, it's going to go out there. And so they set up a, a way of writing routines, how they're going to go about it, that they like. It's hard, not too hard. It's interesting. It's not too risky. And it's mm-hmm. often divorced from the reality of actually how the field works. And so like the way I got into writing is the very first thing I did was through a, a family contact, set up a phone call with a literary agent. And this was a fiction agent. So it was not someone who was going to represent me, mm-hmm. right? It was, this was just like a favor. And I asked her, I said, can you just explain to me, like, how does this actually work? And in particular, if I wanted to write a book, I'm, I'm 20 years old right now. If I wanted to sell a book, I feel like there's probably some very narrow paths that would make that a reality. Like, what would those be? And I just learned the reality of, oh, here's how it works. Here's how nonfiction publishing works. Here's what you would have to do. And then I set off and did that and got my toehold into trade paperback originals and then then worked through those to increase my skill. I think I laid down the challenge of wanting to write a uh, big idea, hardcovers, somewhere around 2007. So mm-hmm. it, it took a while till I got into that world. It's only been the last year or two that I can add, you know, uh, monikers like New York Times bestselling or, or writing for the New Yorker. This took about a decade <laughs> of, of uh, consistent work to build up to. But the key thing I did was trying to understand, well, how does this path actually work? And so I think writing in particular is very specific. What matters? What are the steps? What are they looking for? How do you know where your skill is? Where do you need to put the effort? And I think in the absence of that structuring information, it's very easy to burn off all of your energy into a sort of heat of friction that doesn't get you very far. I had this conversation with a guy sort of related, and uh, it was really funny because the guy was sort of ostensibly consulting for someone else. So it wasn't even the the author who was talking to me. It was like, like his representative or something who happened to know me and he was helping him out. And he's like, well, I'm trying to help out this guy write this book. And I'm like, okay, you know, like not that I'm some sort of expert. I've like published one book or something, but I'm like the only person that that guy knows who's actually done it before. And he's telling me about this, um, this guy. And it was just like the, every red flag that you would have about like, Oh, that's not going to happen. Um, was just like popping up in a row in the conversation. Uh, like the guy was not famous and didn't have any like a particularly interesting story. Like he had just kind of, he was just one of those, like I've done all these odd things in my life kind of person, but not like, Oh, you were the number one of X or there's something incredible about your story that you just have to write down on paper. Um, he had been working on the book for 20 years. He had never like never written anywhere. He never like had any audience or any writing credentials. And he was talking about this and he's listing out all these, these situations. And you're just realizing that, um, you know, how, 
this person's conception of how the publishing industry works and how it would be that if you wanted to become a writer is so divorced from the actual reality of becoming a writer, you just feel bad because this is someone who, you know, they do want to do that. And maybe if they'd started 20 years earlier on the right path, they'd have seven books by now. And, it, you know, it's not that it's impossible to succeed, but if you're going completely down the wrong path, uh, of course it is. Yeah, it's, it's like the secret weapon, basically understanding the path to particular, especially eye-catching endeavors or sort of interesting endeavors. Yeah. Understanding the path is a secret weapon. I, I You know, years ago, the New Yorker used to do this list of top, I think it was the 40 top fiction writers under 40 or the 30 top fiction writers under 30. It was mm-hmm. some number and number. And I remember writing an article about it where I went back and looked at who they were and some very large percentage of them had gone to a very small number of very well-known uh, writers MFA programs. Mm-hmm. And my, my conclusion was it's not it's not that there's some secret skill necessarily like you get that much better at writing in one of these like one year, two year residencies at the Iowa Writers Workshop. My contention was what happens is you really learn how it works. How not just not just the mechanics of how you sell a novel, but but how to get good enough, what is good enough, what type of effort is actually required to get there. Uh, I've documented similar things in professional musicians. There's these camps that young professional musicians or aspiring professional like violin players go to, where one of the main things they learn is how to practice. Because if you're going to play at the professional level, you actually have to figure out how to do the type of deliberate practice that's necessary to to ratchet up your skills. And so they actually go out there and they learn about it. What does good mean? What type of work is required to get to good? And it is the problem when you're in isolation, using your own self-authored maps for how you're going to get somewhere. It, It does set you down the wrong path. Like for writing, let's say you want to write nonfiction. You know, what matters? Well, there's a few things to know. One, you don't write the book first. It's going to be a detriment if you've already written the book. That already goes against most people's understanding, which is that all that matters is you have this book that's brilliant and it has to be there first. It actually hurts you if you've written it first. Two, you have to have the agent first. Uh, people don't like that. They like the the romance of sending the manuscript off the, the publishers and it's going to get picked up and it'll be easier. But it's easier to get an agent than to get a book deal. So if you can't get an agent, uh, there's probably a problem there. And then two, what I always learned, or three, what I always learned is that especially as a first time writer to sell a book, it has to be a topic that a lot of people are going to feel like they have to buy and you have to be the right person to write that topic. Mm -hmm. And so this is the problem. If your first book is going to be, um, uh, you know, I just have thoughts on kids these days or my life has been really interesting. (laughs) If you're not a professional writer, like a journalist or something Mm -hmm. like this, who's really well established, you can't necessarily pitch a book about a general topic. Uh, It's got to be something that has a hook and you have to be, uniquely well-qualified to write it. That's how you get the foot in the door. When I got that information, that's where I came along with, well, I guess then the only way I'm going to get into the publishing industry at the age of 20 is what if I write a book for college kids? Because, hey, there's a big market. I had the numbers, 14 million kids in the US were in four-year universities or whatever the number was. uh, And they need books on, on how to do well in school. There is a pitch to be made that these books should be written by someone who themselves is in school and I was a good student at a good school. So it was like this very narrow lane, one of the very few lanes that I could have possibly actually gotten a book deal in. Uh, but I knew that. And even then to get that book deal, I learned from that very first phone call with the agent, like uh, at your age, they're going to be incredibly worried that you're not going to be able to write a not bad book. <laughs> Which again, for, uh, for first time nonfiction, you don't have to be John McPhee, but it's got to mm-hmm. be professional. So if you write a bad book, if something doesn't come across as professional, the book is a bust. So one of their big fears for new writers is, are you a not bad writer? Like, can you write something that is not going to be unpublishable? And that they were, she said, that's going to be the big concern. So I did, I mean, I was a, I, you know, as a columnist, I was writing for the humor magazine, but that's when I went off and started doing a lot of freelance writing is why I met you was writing a freelance piece about blogging or life hacking or, or, yeah. or this or that, that was directly from that advice So get a portfolio. And, and I was deliberate. I mean, I did this in like a nine month period. I think I, 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 they weren't great publications. Didn't matter. It's like, I'm going to knock out seven or eight freelance articles. So I have a vaguely in the topic area. And I put all of those together because basically what I had learned is that, man, there's this narrow path. You know, hey, if, if as a 20 year old, you're going to get into the publishing industry, you don't have a lot of options. You don't have a lot of options for how you're going to do it. And so you've got to get it just right if you're going to hit that target. 
that is generally true for a lot of things, that the paths are pretty narrow. But if you can figure out what it is, what that high probability path is, and then put focused energy on that path, your chances of succeeding with a head turn endeavor become orders of magnitude higher. Well, that's I, I think that's really interesting. I think that's something that, you know, a lot of your advice is this character that it's not exactly what people want to hear. <laughs> I mean, I think in this space that we're writing, we often are, and I feel this for myself, that like you're often trying to package your advice in such a way that, you know, it, it resonates with people. But I think, you know, from the private conversations I have with you, I feel like you're one of the more, I guess you could say kind of hard-nosed thinkers. I, I don't know. There's obviously people who are like more extreme in terms of like, no, that's not going to work. This isn't going to work. Then, then you are. We are still writing advice to people that hopefully they'll be able to do something. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of the kind of common advice that is floating around in the world. You have a, a strong opinion either against or you feel like it's misguided. What do you think is sort of some of the most overrated or fails to take account of the real situation uh, advice that is sort of popular and floating around out there these days. What's your take on it? Uh, well, I think we we put we put too much self we put too much attention, I think, on uh, ourselves. And I, I mean a few things about that. I mean, so so obviously, I, I wrote a whole book about why follow your passion is bad advice, but mm -hmm. I think that's a a special case of a more general issue which is there's a, a relatively recent cultural phenomenon nowadays by relatively recent, I guess I now mean 40 years. So mm -hmm. this, this, I'm getting older, so this period's getting longer. But there's this phenomenon that, that really looks at um, internal reflection. Uh, there's like these, this, what you're supposed to be doing, these true selves, and then there's stuff that gets that's obstructing that. And if you just clear out the obstruction, the true self comes out and uh, happiness happiness follows. You, you can you can actually track the rise of this as a relatively new idea by watching, as I do a lot because I have young kids, Disney movies. And you, you actually see, it's interesting, a, a switch in Disney movie plot lines, roughly speaking, up until the 90s uh, and through the 90s. I mean, you're thinking even the classic movies of the 90s, like The Lion King or this or that, Little Mermaid, there's often, um, there's often a hero's journey type structure. Like you, 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 what you do is you overcome uh, fear to take on the journey that's going to improve the world or this or that. You look at the more recent movies and it's more like the problem is, is that there's these unfair forces that are holding, you know, keeping you from expressing your true self. And once you get the courage to say, I'm going to be a race car driver, whatever, then like suddenly everything goes really well. And I think that that misses out uh, a lot of the reality of how satisfaction and meeting is formed which is uh, more than just figuring out, you know, th th what it is you want to do and what it is you're supposed to be is more than just that. It is the, the craft, the painstaking honing of craft, applying craft to useful things, uh, doing things that are useful to, to not just yourself, but to the world around you. There's this, this sort of richer craftsman hero ethos that's much, much deeper in sort of the history of human thinking, then this much more new thing, um, where you where you'll get something like uh, what what's some Pixar movie I watched with my kids, one of the Cars movies, where <laughs> like the whole the whole plot line of this most recent Cars movie was this this race car, this car she wasn't racing, but she always wanted to be a racer, um, and the main car, Lightning McQueen, uh, was falling behind because these new high tech cars came in with computer controlled whatever, and he was losing. So he goes down to this track to train and become better, and she's like his trainer. And basically, the plot of the movie is that she just never believed that she could be a race car, and then she finally convinced herself, you know what, maybe I should be. And with no training, and and no, and she's one of the older cars. Uh, she gets puts into the race and beats all the the higher tech cars. And, and like so, the whole obstacle there was just um, uh, believing in yourself, just getting the courage to do something. Yeah, um, I think that that peters out and leads to by when when left by itself, it, it gives a, a burst of energy that peters out, leads to disappointment, and can often uh, leave people worse off. So I think a core of of a lot of my contrarianism is that. It's like good news, bad news. The bad news is, is that there's often like a lot of a lot of hard, frustrating work to get to the things that you think might be really interesting. It's not just, you know, having courage and tomorrow you're better. The good news is, is that I think we undervalue that actual process and how fulfilling that process can be of actually building skills and getting better and and, and doing things of use.
So that's probably the, the foundation of my curmudgeonliness. <laughs> so this this represents, I think, something interesting for me too, because when I think about your, well, at least for the time that I've known you, your kind of trajectory as an author and your books, I'm kind of also reading into it. What's what's the background of Cal Newport's life while this is going on? So when you have How to Win at College and Straight A, this is sort of you being a kind of high achieving student, but still within this kind of traditional student framework. And then I sort of see a shift in the how to become a high school superstar, even though it's aimed at high school students, it's really about the process of impressiveness, which I think if I'm reading into it, uh, kind of psychoanalyzing Cal from from his uh, book titles, this is sort of you and as well as so good shifting into, okay, well, now I'm going to be a grad student, maybe in academia. And so I need to not just be a good student. I don't just need to get straight A's. I need to produce something that makes me stand out and be impressive. And so good kind of reinforces and sort of extends this point because now you're a graduate student or maybe you were postdoc already at, uh, at MIT. This is like elite environment, you're with the best of the best and you have to think about, you know, how do I, how do I compete? How do I succeed in here? And then I feel like there's a bit of a shift, uh, sort of starting in deep work, but definitely digital minimalism and your, your upcoming books where, you know, now you're a tenured professor. Now you've kind of achieved a lot of the things that you were setting out to achieve when you were, you know, 20 and you were trying to get a book deal. You're now New York Times bestselling author, you're a tenured professor at an excellent university, you're director of graduate studies, you've got a lot on your plate. This shift seems to be more about meaning and how this is fulfilling in your life rather than just achievement as itself with kind of meaning as sort of the, the side uh, topic. So how accurate do you feel that is, or am I just reading this in about uh, the trajectory you've experienced in your life? No, that's pretty good. I, I think that that's that huge, pretty close. The only exception you would have no way of really knowing it is <laughs> um, the third book. It's a really interesting pivot book, how to become a high school superstar. Uh, which is basically an admissions guide if Malcolm Gladwell wrote it, was the way he conceived of it. The whole point of that book is it, that is when I got serious. Before that book, I got serious. I want to write hardcover idea books. Mm -hmm. And that was my training. So essentially, this was during the financial crisis when I was writing that book. And there was a huge contraction in the publishing industry. So uh, I sold the book. They had narrow, I, I pitched a much broader book that was going to cover impressiveness and satisfaction from high school through graduate school. They mm -hmm. brought it down. No college admissions, like whatever, uh, at random house, like really contracts during this period, the book goes through seven editors. So seven by the time, yeah, just layoff, 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 layoff. Right. Um, by the time that settles, I think it was like the, you know, the, it was like the dental assistant to my original editor's assistant or something was, was <laughs> editing the book at that point. Right. So no one had any idea. No one had any, uh, uh, any stock in this book. No one who was, had bought it was involved with it. No one knew what it was even supposed to be. And so that whole book, if you actually read it is me practicing writing Malcolm Gladwell style books. Like it's an absurd book. I mean, it's supposed to be, I, I love it. It's supposed to be about college admissions and I'm getting into mm -hmm. counter signaling theory and peacocks. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 but it was, that it was the my failed simulation effect. I think that was my favorite idea from the book. So um, I'm going to just do my take on it and then you can explain to me all wrong. But the failed simulation effect is that we find and judge people impressive, um, not because of, you know, they did a lot of work and that was hard for them to do. But when we can't imagine or simulate in our head how they did it. And I got to say that idea, because I remember this book came out before I did the MIT challenge and stuff. That was like my guiding philosophy for all the projects I did was that I remember being in China and I remember meeting up with this. There was this class of like kids who were going to Princeton and they were going to stay in China for a little while doing some extracurricular thing. And they, they heard that I was there. So I got lunch with them and they're, you know, they were precocious and they spoke Chinese and stuff. And, and I was talking to them and, and I remember talking to one of the guys who was sort of the teacher and I was like, Oh, come on, you know, like just, you know, just slack off your study and come on, come do this thing with us that they're doing with the kids. And I was like, no, 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 I have to go back and I have to work. And he's like, Oh man, you're really serious about studying. I was like, well, no, but the, you don't realize the thing that I have to do isn't learn Chinese well. I have to learn it so well that you have no idea how I did it. Like it was like it's not enough to be good. I have to be able to do it so well that you're it, you're wait I, and that makes it interesting. And so that was definitely an idea that I think stuck with me and still sticks with me to this day of um, separating just being a grind and just putting in a lot of work before. No, no, no. You have to figure out how you can do something that looks like a magic trick almost. Yeah. Well, I, I love that idea. And so, so yeah, like th this was the notion was um, 
uh, yeah, if someone doesn't know how you did something, then you get a huge boost in impressiveness. Because the whole point of this book was there are students who get into really good U.S. universities who are not stressed out. And the whole book is like, let's figure out how they do that, right? And this was a big part of it because creating the failed simulation effect uh, could be quite orthogonal to really hard work, right? It's So So what, what most people uh, uh, trying to get into good colleges do is like, I want to do lots of things that are classically really hard and I'll just try to outwork everyone. It's an incredibly competitive pool. And the failed simulation effect people say, no, I'm going to do something that might not actually take that many hours, but is going to be hard for you to understand how an 18-year-old did it. And therefore, there's a, a it's like a, a illusion of neurochemical whatever, that's just going to lead you to be very impressed with me. And it's, so it's a cool idea. That book is an underground classic. And, and I get, I still get messages from, from kids uh, who, and it really, it really works. Uh, the latest kid I was talking to, um, and, and I think, by the way, I could get away with writing this book because I was so young. I mean, I think it would be creepy now. If it like really profiles a lot of like you know sixteen year olds and seventeen year olds, it features our, our mutual friend Ramit Sethi's uh, brother Manish. And Manish, a, oh yeah, yeah, he plays a role. He's a um, thin simulation effect if there ever was. Yeah, <laughs> I know, like twenty five, I can like mm-hmm. spend time profiling sixteen uh, yeah. year olds. It would be weird now. Um, but like the latest <laughs> student I heard from, she got in the Princeton. Mm-hmm. The same thing without grinding, and she ended up uh, the failed simulation effect causing thing was she had this this. Um, Supreme Court blog and was like on NPR regularly talking about like a teenager's view. So you hear that, you're like, my God, you must be the most interesting person. But as I lay out in the book, like it's not, it's not magic, but you, it's, it's this step-by-step process. You can't plan out in advance. You make yourself really interesting and then you do this ratcheting effect. You can very quickly get to interesting places. But the, the, the twist on the failed simulation effect is that its benefit diminishes with age. Right. Mm. So when you're when you're 17 or 18, you don't have enough time with a very few exceptions, like with chess and music. If you really start young and be a prodigy, you don't have enough time to actually get like incredibly good at something in a classical sense that where, where it's just it's really impressive how good you are. That's very hard, like maybe in athletics, maybe in music, but it's very hard. Uh, so failed simulation is your best bet for being uh, impressive. And also at that age. Lots of different types of endeavors are going to trigger the fail simulation effect. When you're 35, it's much harder to trigger the fail simulation effect. If you're like, yeah, I got my, my blog was featured on NPR. People are like, okay, yeah. So you're a blogger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got so like, good. Your blog's <laughs> yeah. going well. I mean, it's, it's okay. Right. And so like the fail simulation effect, it's this interesting transition. Uh, kids have to go through once they get into college where you have to start transitioning away from like um, what I always call it is like demonstrating potential versus demonstrating results. And when you're young, like trying to get into college and even at college, trying to get set up to get your first job, really what you're trying to signal to the world is like, I have this potential to do all this wonderful things. Once you get a little bit older, potential is less important. It's like, Hey buddy, you've had a chance to do wonderful things. Um, What are they? And so like you lose the ability to do those things. And after a while you have to actually, uh, you actually have to be a significant commentator on, on the Supreme Court. It's not enough that, uh, you know, something I wrote about it got mentioned. When you're 17, that's really cool. When you're 35, they say, well, Jeffrey Tubin had written the nine by that point. So <laughs> we're not that impressed anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I think our mutual friend, uh, Chris Gilbo, I, I heard this quote from him. I don't know whether he's the original author, but he had this quote that really stuck with me. Uh, this is years ago, which was, uh, potential is great when you're 15. After that, you actually have to do something. So I, I always remember reading that, that, you know, like the how much potential you have. And, you know, kind of we're, we're, we're kind of shitting on the, this Pixar movie that's for kids. But the the Pixar movie of like, oh, if only I could have done it. And back in the day, it's like, well, that's that's kind of how it is, right? You have to this sort of, okay, well, I have a lot of potential is something to, you know, people laud you for it when you're young, how how much potential you have. But there's a lot of people who just stayed potential. They never actually, you know, did the hard things that actually would to translate potential into something actual. So yeah. I, I want to shift onto the later, let's, let's go to the later Cal Newport work, the more recent work, the stuff that I think more people know you for. Because a transition, I think, in your writing as well, and I hope that I'm accurate in saying this, has been 
I think there's been a transition from kind of raw ambition of achievement being sort of the goal in itself to now a, a little bit more focus on kind of meaning and fulfillment and this as, as sort of a, a resonance that you might have with the, the work that you're doing. And I mean, I can see the meaningness in So Good They Can't Ignore You and some of these earlier things, but I feel like they feel more traditionally success oriented than Let's see, digital minimalism, for instance, which isn't really success oriented at all. It's all about this connection with meaning. So how does that parallel your own life of, of have you felt that, that like kind of when you had these big ambitions in your site, you had that it kind of focused what your life was about and now you're sort of reflecting on it more? Or do you think it's just sort of been how you've been pulled as a writer because this has been what the audience has wanted from you? No, I think that's fair. So I, I think deep work becomes a transition book. So up through deep work, your, your timeline was right. That basically the, the books I wrote were relevant to the stage of my life. I was at, as I was on the trajectory to reach a place of professional, uh, stature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, college books when I was in, in college and then, uh, career books when I was, you know, how do I choose what, you know, what to do with my career? I wrote that deep work. It could be subtitled, how do I get tenure? So I mean, it was like, I was, I wrote that as a new yeah. professor yeah. and it was, and it was like, oh, I guess uh, actually like deep work is the skill that matters. And then obviously, but it, but it's an interesting transition point because that was the answer to that question that was relevant to me. How do we get tenure? But then I realized there's this much bigger issue at stake, which is, huh, the whole knowledge sector, we seem to have this really interesting mismatch that no one's talking about where this, this particular skill is getting more useful at the same time as getting more rare and it's getting more rare for sort of accidental reasons. Basically technologies like email and Slack is accidentally making us worse at these things. And we're not realizing that's a big deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and the reason why I think that's a, that's a key transition is because basically where that, where I am, where on the other side of deep work or including deep work is I said, okay, but the sort of professional ambition thing, um, yeah, I'm like, I'm a tenured professor, uh, have a distinguished professorship. I'm known in my field, cited thousands of times, have really good peer reviewed computer science stuff. And so now it's less interesting, some sort of ambitious trajectory. Like, how do I do this? How do I do this? I, now I'm looking around and say, well, what can I write that is now that I'm where I wanted to get, I'm like a technologist professor. What do I want to try to understand better? What do I want to sort of help the world understand better? And so that's where you get this shift towards uh, technology and culture. And so deep work is really at that, that transition point. So then digital minimalism is straight in this question of like really trying to understand tech and culture and its impact on people's lives. The, the book that you know I'm working on now is, is about tech and the workplace again, sort of like a follow-up to deep work. And issues of meaning get really intertwined through there because one of the things that I really cover in those books is the, some of the unadvertent consequences of technology, the way that they act, it can actually subvert us from getting more satisfaction or meaning out of life and how to reclaim that and the sort of battle we have with technology. And so I think this phase I'm in now, you're right to point out, is now it's, okay, I feel I'm established professionally and I'm trying to comment on my world in which I'm in. Uh, you know, it, it, so for example, my university is much more aware of what I'm doing in a way they weren't before. Mm -hmm. When I went up for tenure, none of my writing was in my case. Wasn't mentioned, wasn't part of the case, none of my books, none of that. It was just straight up my, my peer-reviewed computer science research. Now, I talk to the dean about it. I talk to the president about it. I talk to the mm -hmm. provost about it. They know about it. They'll bring me, I do, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the alumni at Georgetown and, and the, the provost has a podcast I've been on. And because now it's, it's, it's my writing is, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, 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 a technologist, professional academic technologist who also writes public facing books about this topic. And so that's, a, that's been a huge transition sort of from advice about my ascent upwards towards a sort of stable professional place to, okay, now once I'm there, wanting to actually from this location, write useful things. So I want to shift topic a little bit because I just recently became a father and I know you have three boys and you have uh, more experience with this than me. And I'm very interested in how do you think about life differently in the years since you've had kids and sort of a sub comment on that, just to make it a little bit more interesting. How much do you think you're sort of different, if there is something different about your thoughts on life since having kids, 
I can see two ways it could be different. One way it could be different is kind of like you have been exposed to some new experience. And so you just see more of life than when you were childless. Like if you had never been traveled abroad before and then you've traveled, you you kind of have this experience in addition to your experience at home. And so you have both experiences. So when people are talking about global politics, you just understand it in a different way than you would if you'd only ever been in your hometown. But there's another way of thinking about it that just you're just a different kind of person in the same way that, you know, when I was single and I was dating, that occupied a lot of my mind. It doesn't occupy any of my mind now, but not because it wasn't important when I was in that position. It's just kind of irrelevant to me at this current point. So I'm just curious how you feel like your life philosophy has evolved since having kids and how much of it you feel is just sort of the expansiveness of having had this no kids having kids experience versus just being someone who has kids. You just have to think in a way that's different from someone who doesn't have kids. Well, I mean, it, it, you probably see in my, in my writing as I have more kids, there definitely is more of, you talk about the, the themes of meaning that come up you see more about the deep life living with intention. I mean, these type of themes become uh, constructing or cultivating your life. These themes have always been throughout my writing but I think my perspectives on them really mature once you're also trying to uh, have a family and, and lead a family and support a family and, and raise kids. I think it, it, it definitely has a maturing effect when you, you think about the complexities of life and, and trying, to, trying to craft a good life. I think it, it also probably gave another injection of... Um, sort of hustleness, like another hustle injection. I think like having kids, um, it's not just you want to support them, but you want more autonomy. You want more flexibility. You want to be able to go do interesting things and, and, and have interesting experiences and not be grinding, uh, not being like stuck in an office. And so I think it also sort of unexpectedly made me more entrepreneurial. Hmm. Uh, I write more. <laughs> I, th- I think I just work harder. It's interesting. Interesting. Uh, it's, I have less time. Um, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I mean, one of my, one of my original, this was an original post I wrote a long time ago. And I, I think maybe I wrote this for Ramit's blog at some point, uh, back when the, you know, and it was, uh, fixed schedule productivity. Mm-hmm. And so even when I had nothing going on, so like as a grad student or a postdoc, which I gotta tell you guys, it's such an easy job. It doesn't seem like it at the time, but like <laughs> come back, <laughs> come back 10 years later when you have kids in a, you know, you have to run a department or whatever. It's, it's such an easy job. And so I wrote this post that was like, um, one of the best productivity tips I can give is to place real strict artificial constraints on your time mm-hmm. and then work backwards from like, what do I have to do to kind of meet those constraints? And, and that forces all these smaller innovations and getting rid of wasted time. And it like makes you, makes you much better. So even when I didn't have a lot going on, I was training myself like to work on the really deep constraints. And I think that's, that's paid off now because my time is more fractured. It's more scarce and I have to protect the time I have. Um, but I work, I think much harder than I used to. I try to get mm. more out of those hours. I'm writing books at a faster pace. I write much more articles. Um, and I, so it's interesting. So I work harder in that time. The constraints are clear. I somehow produce more out of that limited time. And I think I'm more entrepreneurial and hustling because before when it's just me or just me and my wife, it's like, it's fine. Like, you know, let's, uh, let's take it easy. Like we, we published a book. Let's like take it easy for a couple of years. And now, um, you know, and a, a completely different mindset. Interesting. So it's, interesting. It's, had a big effect. it's very yeah. interesting you said that because I know uh, Paul Graham, the you know famous software entrepreneur. He had this big kind of uh, post about fatherhood and and this essay that he had written, and he he kind of argued that he felt like it was limiting to ambition and this because you have this other thing in your life that is also important that you're not willing to sacrifice. So I think it's very interesting that you found that it kind of maybe there's some synergy there that the having kids pushed you further into the path that you were already going to take. Well, well, I think if you're on if you're on a, a, a path that has a very well defined competitive structure, mm. uh, so like oh, I'm I'm trying to get to here in startups. I, I, tech startup people talk about this all the time. Like I'm trying to grow a startup into a unicorn or something like that. Yeah. So it's a really well defined competitive structure with well defined metrics, and often is more more raw hours in, uh, invested give better return. Right. Then it's easy, I think, for people in those situations to to see it as a net. Like, well, this is just a net drag on that particular aspect <laughs> yeah, yeah. of my life. But when, when what you're doing is more entrepreneurial, like, well, I'm trying to put together a, a, a mixture of like writing and business around the writing and academic pursuits. You're trying to find some combination that's, that's, that's good, that's stable, that's lucrative, that's interesting, that's flexible. More eclectic, yeah. 
Yeah, more eclectic. Yeah. So so in, in that case, it's it doesn't seem as much of a negative. If anything, mm-hmm. it's like the motivation for, for wanting to do it. I think I was probably lazier before. I mean, I always said- It's hard I to imagine Cal Newport being lazy. So I got to interrupt here. It's just, I, I've known you for a long time and I, this was a comment I made to someone else that uh, there's a lot of people that you meet them in real life and they're kind of less impressive than their persona that they present, you know, that they present themselves as some kind of Uberman. And then when you meet them, you're like, oh, no, you're, you're a pretty normal guy. I mean, maybe you've got a blog or you write this or that. Uh, but Cal Newport is the opposite. So I have met Cal Newport. I know his schedule. You are one of the most productive and uh, uh, hardworking people that I know. And so every time when Cal Newport's talking about fixed schedule productivity or deep work, I'm like, OK, pay attention because this is someone who's really, really working hard, really doing it. But it's true. Like, I think like in my, I mean, don't tell like my university administration, but like as a grad student, I would say in particular postdoc, Mm -hmm. I was probably, I I think especially my academic efforts, I don't know, I was probably at 60% capacity. (laughs) I mean, I was good. I published, but, but I worked with some real stars and I could see what the gap was. And the Mm. gap was about 30 hours a week extra. Yeah. That I wasn't, that I wasn't, you know, was it, so there's always been that kind of a careful throttling back and forth mm. of like, okay, pull this back, push this, this is just enough. And, um, so yeah, I'm not lazy by <laughs> like a standard <laughs> definition, but, yeah. but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want to live in a world fun. where you know, Cal's the lazy one. And this is, this is just like the level, the, the tier of people that we're, we're dealing with. Um, but I'd always said, like, I have done a lot of commencement addresses yeah. and, and probably for good reason. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did come back to my high school at, at their invitation and to their, their senior class award ceremony. This was years ago. And I told them yeah. not to follow their passion. So that's probably <laughs> why I'm not invited to do, <laughs> I'm not invited to do any more. Such of a these. great job. Never get invited again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but my, my point would be that like my commencement speech, I haven't been asked to give, but would, would probably be everything's harder than you think. Like this is kind of like my, my big meta advice is like everything is really hard, especially like once you're, you know, not a student anymore. I love and that. And student, you can, you still have like the fail simulation effect and potential bonus and these type of things. But once you leave that world, everything is much harder than you think. Um, doing hard things is also more satisfying than you think. And so I, I, I always had that mindset and I think kids just turn that knob to an 11. It's like, I was kind of prepped for that. Like, oh man, it's hmm. just really, as you've learned, right. It's just, it's hard, right? Yeah. It's just like really hard, um, but really satisfying. And uh, so I really thrive on that, like doing hard things that are worth doing. You know, I long think that combination is much more satisfying than like the avoidance of hard things, yeah. which is which is like the other default is like, I don't know, I want to I want to feel good and avoid things that are that are too hard. Um, uh, and, and that doesn't really lead very far. Mm-hmm. Like taking on hardship that's meaningful. So, so in that way, that's why uh, having kids can often be like a real source of, it should be a real stabilizer. <laughs> I mean, you're tired, but like you actually feel, um, I mean, I'm noticing this, I think certainly during the, not the date, this podcast, a specific date, but during the coronavirus, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, parents, though they have it the hardest in many ways because they're, they have like homeschooling their kids or this or that, mm-hmm. seem to be kind of the most stable I mean, it's, hmm. it's just like, I think they're just kind of used to, like everything's kind of hard and there's always these hardships happening and it's, they're more used to that. Than well, you just have like no excuses. You have to perform when you're, when you're childless yeah. and alone, if you want to sit at home and play video games all day, I mean, like you, that is an option. It's not, you know, maybe not the one that you'd like to do, but uh, if you have, you know, if you have kids like, well, no, I, I actually have to do these things. And I, I think about that sometimes because there is a, I think a cultural bias that we have that like more choice uh, is good and that people uh, kind of maybe it's sort of off this economics rationale that like people always pick the optimal choice given their set of choices that they have in life and i certainly don't want to make the sense that like people who have external constraints imposed on them necessarily live better or something like that but just that in this age of unprecedented kind of freedom which really it is compared to any other time in human life I think it's sort of up to us to cultivate our own constraints because we're kind of not designed to, you know, we're kind of designed to live in a way where getting enough calories to survive was hard. There were all these, you know, things that constrained our actions. So we weren't just sitting there navel gazing all day and, uh, you know, uh, feeling too uh, misanthropic about everything. If you are 
cultivating your own constraints and you have these sort of things that are guiding you and these are important they're meaningful constraints for you i think that may be a more satisfying life than one that's just endless choice and you're not sure what to pick yeah i think i think self-imposed constraint is the cheat code so i I mean i think you're right the way you put it we're sort of evolved to be uh manifesting intention into concrete world Mm -hmm. uh, up against obstacle and overcoming it Mm -hmm. and we it's hard for us to have fulfillment or stability without that. But it's a hard game because if those externally imposed obstacles get too hard, it can just bear you down. Yeah. It's like a but self-imposed constraints, you can you can tune it. And so that's like that's like the cheat code, the cheat code for for life satisfaction. So like the ultimate self-imposed constraint I think is for example having a family. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh you can it's it, as opposed to like having a, you know, uh, losing your legs in a car accident or something like that. Like that's a hard, you had no say in that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you're like, Oh, we're gonna have kids or something like that. <laughs> I, I'm sure, uh, I'm but sure the, all the parents listening right now, I just love this analogy of like, like losing your legs in a car like, accident, yeah. uh, you know, as, as it were. Um, so just to shift yeah. here, I, I think this brings up kind of, again, a um, point that's maybe too abstract for other people, but I, I want to ask it because this is something I've thought about my own writing. How universalist is the kind of Cal Newport life philosophy if there is such a thing? Because I think about this myself that when I was, let's say when I was like 16 and I kind of first had my kind of idea of, you know, forming my own personal ideas of how I wanted to live and and, and kind of started on this trajectory that I was on. I remember my parents, I think, felt to me sort of embodied a different kind of life philosophy and one that I didn't really understand and I was kind of against you know they had they just sort of always picked like the safe kind of -of run-of-the-mill middle path you know they just got their first job they're both school teachers got their first job they never you know tried to get a different one in a different place or just stay in the same place and just sort of hunker down their whole life and when I was you know 16 as it were I was kind of you know then that's not the way to do things you should be like this and this and this and now that I'm older, I, I, I've come to appreciate even how that is not compatible with how I think about things and pursue things. I at least understand it and I kind of appreciate it in a way. So I'm sort of curious about about yourself because you're trying to write books for a large group of people. How much do you feel your books are really this is what nearly everyone should be doing or you know, some sizable majority of the people should be doing to live better lives versus I'm going to articulate perhaps a kind of niche life philosophy that most people aren't hardwired to like, but the people who are, this is going to be what they need. And this is going to be their guide for them. I know you really like the, or you've, you've talked about the Mr. Money mustache and that, that to me seems like a kind of like most people aren't trying to live on like 30% of their income so they can retire at 35. But there's some people that when they hear that, they're like, Oh yes, that, that is what I want to do. So I'm curious where you feel on this universalist to specific kind of continuum, your advice falls down, or at least you think it does. I think examples can examples I give can go all over the continuum. Mm-hmm. Underlying, I would say, a lot of my recent philosophy is like what I'm basically pitching this deep life notion of you take the areas that are important and you want to focus your energy on a small number of big wins and not get too distracted by everything else. Mm-hmm. So like you want to keep what are the things that really matter in this area? I want to give that big attention and not not be too distracted by other things, right? Um, if possible to take at least one of those and move it to almost like the radical territory, I think you get a bonus satisfaction. So if you take an area of your life where um, there's something really important to you and you do the Mr. Money mustache where it's like, well, that's like crazy what you're doing. Actually, I think you get bonus points in terms of your your feeling of life satisfaction because it's self-signaling. It's it's mm-hmm. taking a high return function and, and, and really pumping up the investment. Uh, so I, to me, that's, I think that's pretty universal. A lot of what I write about is the ways that technologies in both work and our personal life have inadvertently, they get in the way of that. So like in work, instead of, instead of like finding the one or two things that you want to, you want to do really well and really invest your energy into because they're important to you and they're satisfying, uh, email and Slack and social media marketing, all this type of stuff comes in and pulls your attention away from that. And you feel really busy, but the, you you also feel much worse off. And like digital minimalism talked about that in our personal life, that there's these things like your family and, 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 and uh, like exercise, other sorts of things are really important to you. And instead of like really investing on this small number of things that are important and sort of building this like radically focused life around them, you're on your phone all the time. And it sort of dissipates that energy and you just, you're, you're just uneasy. So that's like my universal theme. The deep life gets a satisfaction. We have to be careful about technologies when we don't pay attention, accidentally pulling us away from that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, my my argument is that that 
that sort of minimalist focused approach of take the big swings on the things that matter and don't waste too much time on the things that don't, which includes both ignoring things, but also just, you know, my, my hyper productivity. A lot of that's about just get your arms around the stuff. That's not the big swings that you can't avoid and do it really efficiently. So it's not here like draining at your energy and draining at your attention. Like just get, get your, get your house in order, both literally and figuratively get control of your stuff, invest your time where you want to invest it on the big swings. Don't get too caught up in the minutia. I think that's pretty universal. And I think a lot of people crave that. And I think a lot of people are falling short of it and technology among other forces are pulling us away from it. And so I think that's universal. The degree to how extreme you take it, maybe that's less universal. I think people should be more extreme than they think they can be. I mean, just I, I think there's bonus points you get in terms of like your personal sense of meaning and satisfaction when you push something kind of to an extreme level. It just resonates more. It's self-signaling. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and just the way you understand yourself and your life and the meaning of your life. So I think we should, um, you know, I had this book title once I never wrote called The Good Life Radicals, but it was basically on that on that idea that actually like more people should do more things at a radical level and maybe not professional. Like it might be, there's a thing in my personal life that like I'm known for, like to, it's a hobby type thing that you push to like a crazy extreme or something like this. Um, but I think people should be more extreme than they, than they're willing to, but I think it's universal. Do less, do better, know why that's mm-hmm. the sort of the, the credo of this sort of deep life that I, that I pitch. So I want to shift gears uh, as we're sort of nearing the end of this conversation. Um, what is the most consequential thing that you've written about or sort of publicly articulated somewhere that you feel like you've changed your mind about? Um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, I get in, there's, there's a lot. So actually what I'm doing here is going through a lot to try to figure out what's most consequential. <laughs> so not to, not to give the listener the wrong idea. Or that a I'm consequential thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm not that. struggling to, to think of what I've, what I've whiffed on. I'm trying to think of like, what is consequential. <laughs> um, so like there's definitely when in the world of my, my war against social media, for example, there's like mm-hmm. a lot of interesting nuance in there. So the, the nuance I always allowed for was uh, the thing that makes it so terrible for people is what makes it a great tool if you're trying to sell something. And so I'd always allowed for like, look, I'm not, if you run a business, um, of course you're going to, and you're using social media to advertise. I get why you're doing it because it's like a miracle tool for advertising, right? I mean, they like mm-hmm. have reduced people's brains to vectors and can, can precisely <laughs> you know target your advertisements. Yeah. But I, I've... Uh, y- I hear from a lot of people about the different roles that different things within the social media orbit play in their lives. And like I've turned around recently, I'm interested in like what, what I call colloquially inspirational Instagram, Mm -hmm. which, which what I mean more broadly is uh, for people going through, let's say there's a particular thing, like it, it, it dovetails with like my deep life philosophy. Like you, like I, I gotta be more fit right? Like this is, I, I need to be more fit. It's just going to be the foundation of a better life. A lot of people, for example, will get a lot of help in that by having some communities and people they follow that are just knocking that message. Like it really to see Jocko Willink's watch every morning on Twitter, where I don't know if you know this, but he, he gets up at 4.30 every morning to exercise. And his Twitter feed is he takes a picture of his watch that's his Twitter feed, 4.30, 4.32. And, and it'll just say something like get after it or something like that. Mm-hmm. That materially can help people mm-hmm. transition into like exercising more regularly. Uh, and there's examples in all sorts of other uh, parts of like people trying to improve themselves. There is, uh, they can get access to people who are doing it at a high level and it's like a source of inspiration. So I call that inspirational Instagram. That actually I think plays a, plays a role. Because, you know, you might not be able to find someone in your actual physical local community that could play that source of, of uh, play that source of inspiration. So that's interesting. YouTube, I just can't figure out. I've tried to understand that. I've tried to write about it. Like there's this rabbit hole effect it does with this recommendation algorithms, which is just really toxic. People really complain about it more than almost any side effect. And yet it's not like a social media platform. It's like fundamental. It's a, it's a generic platform for hosting videos. The videos can be embedded in your, your site. It's, so it's also at the 
crux of this sort of democratizing a video. It's very complicated. And so my views on YouTube, for example, have become much more complicated. It can do certain things that can be really harmful for some people, but it's also a platform, really not a network. And, and it's fundamental to the internet. Um, so that's something I've really struggled to understand with, but I'm much less, much less uh, black and white on. For example, well, well, for me, and I mean, not that not that anyone's uh, uh, caring about my my social media advice, but I felt that the struggle that I had before is that whenever I would, because I'd go on periods where I would stop using it altogether, and then I would always like identify there was these like few specific things that I wanted from it. So for me, one of the things I like about uh, Twitter, for instance, is that it is a platform that a lot of like really smart people use um, compared to like where the, where that maybe blogs were in 2006 or something. And so uh, I often am finding out about, you know, new research and stuff that people are doing. And it's like really like really high level discussion at the same time, zero uh, constraints on it. And it's just the default activities. Whenever I have a spare moment, I'm on Twitter. And so the, the thing that I have found very helpful for me is just having, like I use leech block and I have all these blockers. So essentially it stops being the default activity. There's a time and place for using it. And then most of the time I can't go on it. So I still have to like read books and, you know, do yeah. things that are more meaningful. So I do think that there's probably some space in between, but I feel like uh, given that 99.9% .9 of people don't, articulate never mind even constraints for social media just constraints for their life that are not exposed imposed from the outside people don't um you know discipline themselves to those i think it's very hard to do that so i could totally see why for a person you know and i've talked to people who've said that basically they can't they can't self-impose constraints because they talk themselves out of it later they just don't have the personality to do that maybe or they ha don't have the practice with doing it and so they they get in situations where like it's either all or nothing because they can't, they can't convince themselves their future self to adhere to a constraint that their past self had set uh, previously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I call it nowadays, I think of it as like diffusing the ecosystem trap. So it's mm -hmm. like the, the whole game plan of these services is it's a honeypot, right? Uh, <laughs> there are some interesting people. Like you're going to learn some yeah, things yeah. and get some article leads out of it. Uh, that brings you into the ecosystem. Then the trap springs and nine hours go by. You're like, oh my God, like I've been in this system. And so, uh, you know, I find myself a lot more talking like what you're talking about, like recommending to people like, well, you, you end up kind of having to treat this like TV or something. Like if I told you 20 years ago, hey, there's this TV show on uh, Friday night or, or Tuesday night. It's like this hour show that has like the most interesting people on. They're talking about stuff that you really love. You're like, this is great. I'm really glad that show exists. I can't wait to watch it. You can basically transform Twitter into that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, twice a week during certain times, you sit down and like, boom, and you just get hit with these people you're following, all these interesting things, and all these links, you have article ideas for a week, and then bam, you're out yeah. until the show comes back on the next week. The social media companies hate this idea, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 you gotta, you don't understand. Like yeah. we can't get, we can't get 50 minutes of eyeball engagement from you a day uh, then we can't keep our $30 billion valuation, right? And if you're looking at it 30 minutes a week, then, you know, we can't be 2X more valuable than ExxonMobil anymore. But for the user, it's like a, it's like a huge win-win. So that's definitely like what you're saying. That's like definitely what I, I more advise people that if there's things in there due to inspiration or information, Mm -hmm. inspiration information or connection though though i think more and more the connection aspect that is connection with people you know yeah. that aspect of social media is being destabilized by in particular group text and mm -hmm. messenger apps so it's yeah. interesting more and more people have moved that aspect of the social internet out of the large fully featured engineered addictive social networks and onto these these much more uh, bare box services where there is no algorithms around that there is no tracking there is no other things they're trying to pull your attention it's just i well you know what i used to see what my family was up to on facebook we have a group text you know i mm -hmm. used to put my photos on instagram we, we drop them in the group text or there's like a photo stream or we use whatsapp or something like that it's like that's migrated out of social media yeah. social media has become more about information and inspiration but once it's about inspiration and information network effects don't matter as much anymore. Like, remember like the big pitch for Facebook is like, it was worthless to you unless the people you happen to know were also using the network. And so you had to have the biggest network. But now if the goal is like, I want to find interesting people mm -hmm. or I want to, I want to find inspiration. 
you don't necessarily need a network with a billion people on it. And so I think this shift is actually going to open up a lot more competition in the social media space. Um, you no longer need to have one network where everyone is. Now I might find a, a, some bespoke long tail social media network that has the type of people I really care about. And that's I'm happy with that. There's no reason for me to also look at Instagram. Maybe this one charges a dollar a month, so they're not trying to make it addictive and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think those are all really interesting trends. But um, the the summary of all of that is I think you're absolutely right. And this is something I've really changed on is like, yeah, you, you, you extract that stuff. You figure out how to get out of it with minimal cost. It's usually by TVifying it set times during the week, maybe once or twice you go in, you bathe in the inspiration, you bathe in the information, <laughs> you shut it down and then you got to go read a book, you know? Yeah. And, and, and actually I think that works really well. And I think it will inevitably lead to the fragmenting of the social media universe that we don't no longer need three platforms worth a combined hundred billion dollars. We could have a hundred thousand platforms and you like cable channels, you know, mm -hmm. and I pull from this one and this one and this one because, Hey, when it's information inspiration, network effects don't matter nearly as much. Well, I want to thank Cal for having this conversation with me and I wanted to turn it to you. Obviously, I think most people who are, who are know me would know who you are by a transitive property here. Um, I, obviously want to give you a chance if there's any place you'd like people who have sat through and listened to us chat about this, where would you like them to go to find out more about your work and your books? Well, well, after Scott convinced me to start blogging back in 2007, <laughs> I've been doing so ever since. So yeah. calnewport.com is where you can, you can look at all my writing all the way back to those, to those early Scott Halcyon years. days. Yeah. The halcyon days and our small apartments as students. <laughs> <laughs> so calnewport.com will get you there. As always, I tell people you won't find me on social media. So that'll be your best bet. Uh, okay. Though if you are, if you have like mean things to tweet at me or, or like yeah, send me evil things, aim them at Scott because I hear he has accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was great chatting with you. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott H. Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website, scotthyoung.com. Thank you.